This morning I'll be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Just for full disclosure, this is really hard to preach in front of a bunch of women. I'll just say that. I mean, you know we're committed to expository preaching, don't you? Now, this would be one jump right over. Now remember, before we look at this text, I didn't write the Bible, so I just want to make that clear. And I want to remind you that oftentimes, you know, it, it's kind of, it's almost analogous to the weatherman. You know, the weatherman will often give a report of rain for the day that you want to go to the beach, and, and you get mad at the weatherman for just reporting the news. I'm just going to try to report the news here as opposed to, I'm not creating it, so... Uh, I, I think when we come to a text like this that is so culturally problematic, I, I, we don't want to forget the purpose of this whole book that we're studying. So remember, 1 Timothy, you know, this uh, Paul is an apostle, and he's instructing Timothy, and by the way, in verse 1, he's an apostle by the command of God. So, uh, so the, the idea is that by command of God, He's instructing Timothy on how to organize or lead the church to function. Remember back in chapter 3, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. He says that you may know, so Paul writes to Timothy, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So what you have is, is Paul's instructing Timothy, hey, this is how the church ought to function. This is the design of the church. This is the order of the church. This is how you're going to get yourselves together. And when you gather in worship, this is what you do. So these instructions are from the aged apostle to this young pastor. Now we saw in chapter 1 uh, that part of the instruction was to preach and, and protect the gospel. Remember, the gospel was that which was entrusted to Timothy and Paul. The gospel is this good news that God has been kind to us, as David prayed, God has been kind to us in giving a son, a Messiah, one promised from long ago to deliver us from sin and shame and guilt and reconcile us to God. All of us bear the weight of our own shame. We feel the guilt in our conscience. God has provided a son to deliver us, reconcile us to God that we might, we might be adopted as his children. So the church is gathering together, that's the message we proclaim. And that's the message that we gather ourselves around. And we protect that message. Because false teachers are going to come and introduce heresies that will distract or dilute from that message. We see it in chapter 1, 4, and 6, and throughout 2 Timothy. So we're called to pr promote it and protect it. But he also gets into specifics about how we organize ourselves. 
Daniel preached last week on the need that the church gets together and prays. And we pray for kings and those in authority. In fact, we pray for all peoples. And we pray for these peoples to come to know Christ, the one mediator between God and man. Uh, but now Paul continues this teaching, but he gets more specific in terms of how men and how women come to gather themselves together in worship. Now, clearly, this is probably one of the hardest passages in the pastorals, and not just because it's difficult to interpret, uh, but it's also so culturally flammable, right? It's, it's difficult. Uh, there is, at this point, in this moment in time, our cultural moment here, there is a big gap between the Bible's thinking on gender and sexuality and culture's thinking on gender and sexuality. And the Bible makes no bones about always proclaiming humanity being brought forth in two distinct genders, male and female, he says. Male and female, God created them. And so Paul follows this idea of male and female by speaking to the men and speaking to the women. So we're going to look at men in worship. There's one verse for it. And then we'll speak about women in worship. There's a couple extras for them. So let's start with the men, though. Look with me at 8, because he's kind of giving us some, I think, wonderfully simple but important advice. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger <clears throat> or without quarreling. Okay, so Paul's stating his desire. He intends to, to encourage Timothy to encourage the men to pray lifting up holy hands. Notice, though, that he says in every place. So I, I think what he's saying is that this instruction he's given to the church isn't just for the Ephesian church alone, but in all the gathered communities of Christians, uh, all the places that are gathering themselves together in churches, that this is what they ought to be doing. Men ought to be lifting up. And, and I would even say beyond that, it wouldn't just be church specifically, but in the homes in their personal lives. Men are to lift up holy hands. Now, lifting up hands in prayer, we don't do that a lot anymore. I mean, some do, and they lift their hands in worship. We don't lift our hands. Now, if you were to, um, if you were to go through the Roman catacombs, places where Christians would often worship in the first, second, and third century, you would see paintings of these ancient Christians praying like this, or praying like this. They would lift up hands. So it's a posture of prayer that the ancient church used to practice more than we do today. Now, when Paul says to lift up holy hands, I don't think he's just worried about our posture in ministry, but the posture does reflect the heart of a person. And when my dad would give me instructions, and if he wanted me to really pay attention, I'm slouching in the chair, that communicated to him a casualness that he didn't really put up with. So, so he'd say, stand up, sit up straight. That sh showed more of an attentiveness. There's a relationship between our posture and the attitude of our heart. What Paul is going after here is, I think, the attitude of the heart. But he's using the hands. Why? Because the Old Testament does. In the Old Testament, you often see these clean hands in Psalm 24, Psalm 26, clean hands as being symbolic of a, of a pure heart. So he's saying, men, when you come to worship, you want to pray with holy hands. Now, this makes it kind of difficult because we don't feel very holy. I mean, most of us wouldn't claim any sort of perfection or holiness. We often feel very guilty and filled with shame over what we may have done yesterday. 
And so when he says, I want men to come, lifting up holy hands, he's saying, man, I want you to come to church having confessed the nature of your sin, to have repented of those things that you, you feel that have caused you to feel distant from God. There's a call for repentance here. Not just over perhaps those things that you did in secret, but maybe the anger and the conflict and the, and the quarreling that you're having, the unreconciled relationships, the bitterness that you may have with people. He's saying to come into worship, holding on to sin or holding on to conflict, is to deny the very God you're saying that you're coming to worship. Now, Paul said it this way in Acts 24, 16. He said, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Now, if Paul, the apostle, is saying, I'm striving to keep my conscience clear. So, you know, as was just prayed, our conscience bears that weight of sin. And so if Paul's striving to keep his conscience clear, then obviously his conscience is being affected by a sin. So what does he do? He confesses it. He gets right with both God and with others. That's what he's kind of saying here. So, so let, let, just a couple takeaways for you men in this. Uh, first, I would say this, that your prayers, your worship is going to be hindered by your abdication. What do I mean by that? Notice what he says, I want men to pray. He's not saying I don't want women to pray. In 1 Corinthians 4, the implication is that women will be praying as well. I think he's trying to draw men from the shadows. It's not just in our day that men often abdicate their, their call to lead in spiritual matters. It's a, it's a great threat to the church, actually, for the men to stay back in the shadows. And, and, and I've, I've heard it said many times, well, my wife, my wife knows more of the Bible than I do. And that, way, that may well be true, but it doesn't mean we can't lead. It doesn't mean we can't still strive to initiate prayer. So, so let me encourage you that worship will be hindered by our abdication, by our always allowing someone else to do it. Uh, so men, in the home, in the church, you also can be praying, initiating prayer. Uh, but secondly, our prayers and worship are hindered by our own unholiness. We know what it feels like. You want to come in and enjoy God and worship, and yet you're hanging on, you're tightly clenched to unconfessed sin. You're living a duplicitous life. You have kind of those parallel lives going, and it feels as if worship is superficial. May I just encourage you to confess that? I mean, may I encourage you just to recognize that between yourself and God and ask God to forgive you? You see, the gospel does save the gospel keeps saving us. The gospel isn't just needed to get you into the kingdom, but actually the gospel keeps you in the kingdom. The gospel keeps you being saved. So I was praying yesterday morning, time of worship, and I came across Psalm 40. And it's amazing what Psalm 40 says. He says, this is David saying, evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Here's the great David admitting how dark he is. My iniquities have overtaken. I can't even see. They are so before me, I can't even see you, God. But it's interesting what he says right before that in Psalm 40, verse 11. He says, as for you, Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me, your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever persevere me. And then he says, 
My iniquities have overtaken me. And I cannot see. They're more than the hairs of Do you see the tension he's living in? He recognizes he's a sinner, but he recognizes God as a great Savior. And so he goes to the gospel, the steadfast love of God, which almost engenders us to want to confess and want to clean our hearts so that we can come into worship lifting holy hands. The worship is not for the perfect, it's for the penitent. And the same thing, that our worship is hindered by our ongoing conflict and anger. Let me warn you, we've all faced that day. You walk in the doors of the church and you're seething in anger, either with your spouse or with a friend or a member of this church or perhaps a child. We, we, we come in to experience the nearness of God and yet the nearness of God is a distant truth because we're so angry. And, and let me just say, to nurse in anger you know, to think back through the words spoken and the conversations had and the actions done and to allow that to just be something that you're, you're needing like a lump of dough, your worship will be stunted. I, I mean, it will be superficial. It will be distant. Uh, so I think this is good instructions for men to come with holy hands without anger or quarreling. May I encourage you to think about this? If you're married, talk to your spouse about this. I mean, to what degree do they see you leading? To what degree do they see you confessing? To what degree do they see you reconciling? If you're not married, ask a good friend and give them the freedom to speak honestly with you. It's hard to see our own blind spots. I can't see the food on my face. Someone needs to point it out to me. So invite someone to do that for you. Okay, so Paul moves from the men, and now he speaks to the women. Now, this is where, <clears throat> let's just say, it gets a little dicey, right? He's going to speak to the women about their dress, but I want you to keep in your mind that just as he spoke to men's posture in prayer, going after the heart, <clears throat> so he's going to speak to women's dress, going after the heart, and then he's going to speak about their discipleship. So first, dress. Look with me. At 9 and 10. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with, with good works. Now, Paul's a brave man. He's jumping right into ladies' fashion. I, I, I remember the, the first time that Carol had asked me, she goes, what do you think of this dress? I just blacked out. I, I didn't know what to do. I, I blacked out. Now, when I came to, I thought this was the answer. I said, what do you think about that dress? <laughs> that worked one time. That was it. After that, she wanted an answer right there. Now, Paul is not speaking. Ladies, don't panic. He's not telling us what we can't wear, what we can wear. I think he's going after the heart of why do we dress the way we dress. I think he's speaking about the intentionality of the heart. He's talking about the respectability of dress. You know, this idea of, of, he's not saying that you shouldn't dress attractively, or he's not saying that you shouldn't dress in a, you know, in a flattering way, or be, be aware of fashion. I don't think he's speaking about that at all. I think he's speaking about what motivates us to dress the way we dress. He speaks about respectable, uh, something that is, you know, that's the same word, by the way, used for, um, the qualities of an elder that we're going to see next week. He, he continues kind of explaining respectability by saying it should be modest. Now, modest simply means without shame. 
uh, modesty is, you know, that there are certain bounds of propriety that most of us just agree with, to not cross them. You're not called to cross lines of propriety. But notice he goes on, he says self-control. And what does this have to do with dress? Well, I think he's talking about, again, our intentions. About why do we dress the way we dress? So if it takes us two hours to get ready physically for worship, but it takes us two minutes to get ready spiritually for worship, there might be a problem with proportion. In other words, do we dress as a means of drawing attention to ourselves? Or do we dress in a means of, of being just you know, non-distractive for worship? And the reason I say it that way is because look what he goes into next. He says, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. I don't think he is saying. He's not prohibiting braiding hair. Uh, but in this time and in this age, those of a higher social class of greater wealth would weave strands of gold or pearls in their hair as they fix their hair. And they would wear this costly attire. In other words, they were dressing in a manner for you to recognize their position, their wealth, their social station. And so Paul's simply saying that our dress shouldn't be motivated by this drawing attention to ourselves or even the social station that we have in life. And that's why you see the parallel. He says, no, rather adorn yourselves with good works. A woman who professes godliness ought to dress with good works. What's he mean? Well, I just think he means that a woman who confesses Christ is looking to have a life that is revealed by the good work she does, the sacrifice, the engagement, the involvement that she has with others. These good works are things that don't go out of fashion. Moth cannot destroy, rust cannot take away. And Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 5, 16. He says, in the same way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. So I think he's drawing the ladies to be less concerned on the physical, more on the spiritual. How do our lives draw attention to God? How do the things that we do, the, the things that we say, the way we say them, how does that cause people to say and to think higher of God? rather than just speaking about us. So I think he's speaking about it that way. So I don't want people to panic like he's telling us how to dress, it's so many fingers below the knee. I don't think that's, I think it's motivational. Remember now, he's not just speaking about, you know, a woman who may dress in a provocative manner and how it's distracting, drawing attention to herself. He may be addressing that, but he also may be addressing the woman who wants to dress in some Puritan garb to just show everybody how incredibly modest she is. They're both the same. They're just on different sides. But they're both seeking attention for themselves. Where He's saying, no, seek attention for God by the way we adorn our lives with good work, sacrifice, service, care for other people. So it takes it out of the realm of the physical and it draws our minds to the spiritual. So, so first then, Paul is talking about the posture of our heart and dress but now he goes into the, into the heart of the posture of the woman in discipleship. And now this is where I think if you were to take 11 and 12 and 13 and 14, there are tens of thousands of pages on, written on this. So I want to make it really simple for us. I think he's simply saying that women are called to be voracious 
learners. Learners, look with me at 11 and 12. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to be remain quiet. Now, remember the context here. He's speaking about public worship. He's not speaking about the marketplace. He's not talking about workplace. He's not talking about the university. He's talking about when the church, when the saints gather together, how ought they to move forward in worship, in discipleship. And notice that he says, let a woman, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, quickly, quietly with submissiveness. What does this mean? It does not mean women are to be silent. Uh, some of the older scholars or older commentators want to think that women should be silent. Uh, women's not to be silent in worship. You're singing, you're speaking. You know, as I said in 1 Corinthians 11, it seems to imply women were praying and prophesying at some level. We've got to define prophesying, of course. But, but they were involved in the worship of the church. So it doesn't mean silence. It has the idea of receptivity that when women are coming, now the cultural context probably was false teachers had come in and had given and granted greater liberties to women, and, and so they were maybe more assertive, more bold, and, and so Paul's trying to bring some definition, some clarification to how women are to behave in worship. And when he says to learn submissively, they're learning with reception, like, like I want to receive what's being delivered. There's a certain degree of respect to the truth that's being taught. Uh, so it's not speaking at all of silence, but more the posture of the heart in how hungry do you come to worship? How hungry do you come to learn? That you're to learn in submissiveness. And sadly, when you read this, most eyes, at least feminine eyes, go right to the quiet or right to the submissive, and all of a sudden, you know, the hair kind of raises on the back of your neck, and you, get, you clench your fist. Uh, it's interesting how we miss the incredible earth-shattering news Paul's given. You do realize that in the first century, women were generally not taught. It wasn't worthy to teach a woman the scriptures. So it was thought. So in the Jerusalem Talmud, that's a, a rabbinic writings on scripture and on theological thought, it says this, better to burn the Torah than teach it to a woman. So th that was the view. But, but that, that's, that's the context now, to not teach a woman. Better to burn it than to teach it. Or a Talmudic prayer that was prayed every day among certain Jewish sects was, thank you, Lord, that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So, so that's the posture. So when Paul's saying, I want a woman to learn, that is revolutionary. I mean, right now in our cultural times, this is offensive to women. But I want you to know when it was written, this was offensive to men. It was offensive to men because they were thinking, why are you teaching a woman? And so Paul's liberating women. He's, he's wanting women to learn theology, to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. Just like we are here at Christ Covenant Church, we want women to be strong theologically. We don't want you to, to, just to know the gospel. to be. We want you to know all the ins and outs of theology on God's sovereignty and and evil and suffering. That's why we have Bible studies, we have conferences, we have studies in the summer. Why? Because we want women to learn. We want you to have kind of theological backs of steel, of theological steel. But you notice he wants them to learn, but he has these two caveats that cause no small amount of discomfort for women. He says, I, I do not permit them to teach and to exercise authority. Now, what is he saying here? 
Well, Paul's not prohibiting all teaching, obviously. And I say obviously because Paul says uh, to Titus in his letter that the older women are to teach the younger women. Uh, Paul writes to the Colossian church in 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. Men teaching women, women teaching men. You see Priscilla and Aquila, I, a husband and wife in Acts 18, Apollos was a, was a traveling teacher. They, he and she, instructed him better on the gospel that he was preaching. So, so, so you see that Paul's not prohibiting all teaching. So what is he prohibiting then? How do we understand this? Well, I think there's two things going on. There is the teaching and there's the exercising authority. And so what is he not permitting? Well, let me just submit to you that I think he is simply prohibiting women from being in the office of elder. He's simply prohibiting them from being in the office of elder. And the reason I say that is because you see these two things together in chapter 2. You see these two things together in chapter 5 of the same book. He says in 5.17, Let the elders who rule well, or exercise authority, be considered worthy of double honor. Boy, isn't that a great verse for today? Yeah. Maybe not. Uh, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So you see those two things together. You see the authority and the preaching and teaching together. So I think he's simply prohibiting women to be in the office of elder. That the elders be occupied by a man. Not, not every man, but a qualified man, as we're going to see in chapter 3. And not every qualified man, uh, but every qualified man who desires for the office of elder. So, so you have Paul, I think, trying to give instruction. It is set in a cultural context, no doubt. But we're going to see why it applies to more than the first century in Ephesus because he gives us reasons in 13 and 14. He wastes no time to get to the reasons, and I don't want to waste any time either. So look at what Paul's rationale is for his instruction. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So Paul, oftentimes when he speaks on issues of gender and sexuality, he goes back to Genesis. And he goes back to Genesis because Genesis is where we see God's original intention before the fall into sin, before our entrance into the wilderness. This is what God has designed us to be. So he goes back to Genesis to establish a truth, a principle of life that goes beyond time, culture, time and culture. It takes it out of that. It's not culturally bound. Now, some things are culturally bound. Perhaps women covering their head, we'd see that as more culturally bound. But because he's going to argue from creation, we would not apply that cultural limitation to this text here. And notice there's two reasons. First, that Adam was formed first. Now, that is true. In Genesis 2, the man was created first. But that is not a value statement. God created Adam first as establishing a design and an order to how he wants his creation to function. He created the man first to lead, to love, to serve, to sacrifice first, to protect. So he was created first as a means of giving protection and love and covering to those under his charge. And so God has woven into the fabric of manhood 
the call on the man's life. It doesn't mean men do this and women do this. There's a continuum. There are some women who, who like to do things more associated with, with um, masculinity. There are some men that like to do things more associated with femininity. There's a continuum there. there, there we're, we're fools uh, to think that it's just this strict, narrow sect that you can only do this and I can only do this. There's a continuum there. But we do have to see that God did form the man first to lead and to love well. But his second reason, which causes no small amount of frustration, is that it says that the woman sinned. He says, uh, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, now, sadly, a lot of commentators will look at this and they'll say, well, women, uh, they sin first. They receive more of the blame. In other words, Eve eating the fruit receives more of the blame than the man. Or women are more gullible or easily deceived. I don't think it's saying that at all. At all. I, uh, men and women are equally deceivable to false teaching. So th that's, women aren't naturally, I don't think, more gullible than men. I, I think what he's driving at is, is by bringing up Eve being deceived, he's bringing up the reversal of roles. In other words, he created the man. I, I think it's an indictment of male abdication, is what he's saying here. That he was, it says in Genesis 3 that when she ate the fruit, he was with her. She gave it to him and he ate it. So I think what he's saying is that, that the, um, the reason that men are called to lead is because men, by created God's design, creating man first, is to lead. And when you reverse the roles, then you begin to enter chaos. In other words, the man abdicated leadership, the woman assumed leadership, the roles were reversed, and so you have the fall into sin. And I think Paul's simply saying, God's original design, this is what brought chaos to creation, don't bring it into the church. And the church is the community of the new creation. We are his new creation. And we are striving to walk in the intentions that God's laid out in Genesis. Uh, so you have those two reasons there. Because he once reflected in the church what he once reflected in his created order. Now, Paul does give a word of encouragement to ladies in verse 15, if you can call it that. But in verse 15, he says this. So he's talked to the women. He's talked to them about the attitude of their heart and dress. He's talked to them about their attitude and discipleship. And now he speaks a word of encouragement. And yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. Now, what in the world does this mean? Well, there is no small amount of options for us. And if you are interested in getting into the excruciating detail of all the various options, all you need to do is email you, email me, and I will send you all kinds of links that you can just enjoy at your pleasure, all the different options. I'm going to offer you one. And, and I think it's been held by many over a long period of time. I don't, yeah, I... I think it's a good one. I don't think it's the only one. But for the sake of clarity, I want to offer you what I think is the best one. What does he mean? Yet she will be saved through childbearing. I hope you don't miss the metaphor of the thundering coming as I'm preaching. You know, because <laughs> that's what I'm feeling in my soul right now, just for the record. Going through this is like climbing uphill polyglass, just for the record. And I get to do it twice, so you guys get to leave. I get to make another group happy. 
Okay, yet she'll be saved through childbearing. In Greek, childbearing is singular, and it has a definite article before it. Now, why is that important? Because if you were to translate it literally, it was she will be saved through the childbirth. She'll be saved through the childbirth. Now, we know that women, it's not literal. Women are not saved by having children, right? What, what, what would happen to men? Or what would happen to the woman who's barren or has never married? Maybe she's been called by God to remain single and to be faithful in her singleness. So I don't think it's literal. We just learned in chapter 1 that Paul says it was by the mercy of God and it was by the grace that overflowed into my life with faith and love. That's how he was saved, saved through the gospel, that treasure that's been entrusted to us. So what does it mean that she will be saved through the childbirth? Well, I think it's a reference to Mary and the birth of Jesus. Just as the curse came through the sin and the curse for the woman was on childbirth, so now redemption comes through another childbirth, and that is the birth of Christ. So as sin entered in the cursed place, now salvation comes through the childbirth. So I think it's giving women this dignity that if long thought came through a woman, salvation has come through a woman, the salvation of the Son. So I, I think Paul is saying women are to be honored because it was by virtue of the childbirth through a woman that salvation, freedom from the curse, has come. So if you don't like that, I got nothing else, but I'll give you some links. But, but the idea, do you see the, what Paul's trying to do here? He's trying to help us understand our station and our roles in life, that, that women will be saved through the childbirth, not just women, but men and women, and not just the childbirth, but the child's death, right? The child's death is going to be what ultimately saves us. And that's why Paul said, I resolve to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Him crucified for us. But he came through a woman, showing that balancing act that God does in redemptive history. So what do we do with this? Uh, how do you handle these more difficult, these culturally problematic texts? I mean, how, how have you heard me today? Have you heard these as the words of God? You know, Paul does say in verse 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, commanded by God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Do you see this as Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, bringing forth? How do we hear it? Uh, do we kind of walk away from it? Do we just disagree with it? Uh, what else do you have in place of it? I, I mean, th th this is where I think we're called to submit ourselves to things that we don't even fully understand. But, but let's at least try to walk in obedience to that which we do understand of this text. So, so there's how do we come to these more problematic texts? A lot of times it's, it's we don't see ourselves underneath the word. I think we see ourselves standing above the word, making judgment whether I ought to believe it or not. Now I get it when these texts are particularly difficult it's harder to want to submit to something that you don't fully understand. But let me just ask you to pray about it, even this text and how you might understand it. And I'm open as the elders are open for you to come. And if you have questions about it, that we can try to further explain what you can't do in a 30-minute sermon. But then secondly, I would say, do you at least see the unique glory of the equality and the complementarity that God intends in his church? Let me explain that. 
God intends there to be an equality among men and women in the church. Paul is often seen by this verse to be a misogynist. He's a woman hater. Look at it. It's oppressive. Just Paul's just keeping, keeping the lid down on ladies. That's what he's doing here. It's always been that way. It's been a patriarchal society. That's what Paul's doing here. May I just challenge that for a moment? It was Paul the Apostle who wrote the book of Galatians, and he says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ. Now, an evangelical feminist will say, see, Paul is now eliminating the distinctions between genders, male nor female. They're all one in Christ. Uh, let me just propose a different thought to you. I don't think he's eliminating gender distinctions. I think he's eliminating value distinctions, value distinctions. We value people based on their ethnicity. And he's saying, listen, Jew or Greek, you're all one in Christ. That we don't want to value people based on their ethnicity. Or social distinctions, slave or free. You know, we value people. They're really rich. They must be smarter. They must be better. We value people based on their social station. He says, don't do that anymore. You're one in Christ. Uh, male, female. We value people based on gender. We think highly of them, holding certain... He says, no, male nor female, you're one in Christ. I think he's eliminating value distinctions, not gender distinctions. And then secondly, it wasn't Paul just doing this, but Paul also uh, gave the words in 1 Corinthians 7. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says to the husband and wife that the, that the, woman of the, bo the uh, body of the woman was for the man. Now that was well known and well assumed in first century. But then he said, the woman of the, or the body of the man is for the woman. Now that would be revolutionary because there was no parity in sexuality in the bedroom. Paul's bringing equality right into the bedroom. He's lifting up the value of women, saying that they have the right over the body of their husband. So I don't think Paul's being a misogynist at all. I think there's equality here. And, and the, between men and women in the church, we are of equal value. But there is complementarity. There are differences that we don't want to deny or eliminate. And these differences create an interdependence between men and women in the church that we need to have. Uh, that th the strengths that women bring are necessary for the well-functioning of the church. And the strength that men provide, different strengths, are needed for the well-functioning of the church. And you see this played out perfectly in the triune God, don't you? I mean, isn't it analogous to the Trinity? You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They are equal in substance and value and glory. And yet they have different roles. They have different functions. And so there you see within the Godhead this equality and complementarity. That's why we want women to do everything in this church. Uh, the prohibition is for the office of elder, but, but it's not prohibiting all teaching. I, I was instructed by three women that I wrote. I wrote three women on this passage. What do you understand it to mean? How do you understand? What are the problems in the text? How do you understand this? And their thoughts have informed the preaching that I just gave. I'm instructed by women all the time. But not just teaching, but serving, evangelizing, missions, involved in leadership in the mission teams. So, so I mean, there's all kinds of things, uh, really everything except for the office of elder, are women called, needed to do, to bring to bear. In fact, we've been even discussing, you know, how do we draw that greater value of complementarity into the leadership of the church? A lot of churches do it different ways, trying to figure out what's the best way for us to do it. 
Uh, so you see here, it's not a it's not a put down on women at all. It's Paul trying to give direction to men and to women. Now, I know that I'm going to finish in just one second, and I'm not going to have answered all the questions. Well, can a woman teach in a Sunday school class with boys in it, or can she teach in a home group? There are all kinds of issues that I have not addressed, and I'm happy to address those with you. Uh, but I wanted to get the main point of the text across, which was the, both the value of men and women in the gathered community. So let's just take a moment and ask for God's grace to maybe bring clarity to our minds on this, and then the degree to which we can find clarity that we walk in certainty before it, and then I'll pray for us in just a moment. <clears throat> 